welcome to the Better Future podcast series brought to you by Driven by Design Award Programs. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and joining me is... Kirsten Mann. I'm Global VP of Product Experience for Oracle's Construction and Engineering Global Business Unit. This podcast series is a special series where we focus on design in the boardroom. It's a series of infill recordings and live panels with design giants from around the world, and we discuss how boards are leveraging design to accelerate economic outcomes. In other words, how is design being managed up, down, and across the organisation? In this episode, Mark talks with Jessica Greco from IDEAN. They dig into design culture driving enterprises. I'm speaking with Jess Greco. G'day, Jess. Hi, Mark. Now, we're here in the IDEAN office on, um, uh, what are we on, Spring Street? Spring Street in Soho. Which is an awesome space. It's light-filled. But what is around me is an environment which is, this is like the thought works of how do you actually help your clients to go and achieve their goals? It's an interesting time in the business. Uh, we've... We were acquired a few years ago by Capgemini, one of the big management consulting firms, and we've been doing the dance of design and business. Now, I did notice that I forgot that Capgemini had bought you, but when I came in here, you gave me a beautiful cup of coffee, but there was no croissant. So obviously the Capgemini culture hasn't come all the way across. Maybe that's something that I'm just reflecting on, old culture of the organisation. No, they, they love the pastries. There's, there's a lot of French influence in the company. Uh, we just try to keep it low carb. That's why we have fruit instead. Fantastic. So I want to have a bit of a conversation with you about the diversity of roles that you've had because from from a boards and managing up perspective, you've had everything from tech startups, there's been um, uh, non-for-profits, there's been Fortune 500 companies and now with the work that you're doing at Odeen, there's actually all of that that comes in through a roster of clients through the door. So you've been exposed to a lot of people who have had varying levels of sophistication about how do they brief you, what toolkits do they have, where does that dialogue happen? And I'd really like to just drill in on some of the some of those situations where you've had immense success and also some of the ones where it may not have been your best day on the sporting field. Okay, let's do it. Okay, so let's go and actually we'll start off with the, the hero hero story. We'll go to a zero story. We'll go back to a hero story. Okay, so tell me out of situations where you've been where somebody's asked you for can you help us? but you've realised that they may not know how to go do it, but they definitely know how to manage the pursuit that they're on. Does anyone come to mind? Yes. I've, I've definitely worked with clients where they know that decisions need to be made. They know where they need to go ultimately, but they're not sure what to do in the interim to get there. Um, one of the biggest problems is decision-making and connecting the reality of what people are actually doing with the business goals and the desires. It's much easier to extend someone's behaviors than change them completely. And clients that I've worked with have different levels of experience with that. Some of them don't really want that challenge to their power, if that makes sense. Um, part of the reason I started, I, I decided to work in consulting and try it was because I was interested in working with the C-level in a more actionable way. I wanted them to have a dialogue with us about what their goals were and what was realistic and, and, and what was humane enough 
Um, and it's, it's interesting because they don't always know how to let go of the decision-making process. They're used to being the person with the answers. So you're here working with, as you mentioned, that there's a C level. Do you ever get up into the B level, into the board level with these briefs? Are you getting exposure to board members who are saying we want or is it that the C level, they're articulating what's been expressed to them and then you're helping them to go feed that back into the B I've had exposure to both. Uh, Usually when you're at a startup, contact with the board is more limited unless it's negotiated as part of the role, which was not something I knew up front. Uh, I learned that the hard way um, at one of the startups I was at. I found out that the the head of technology, the VP of technology, was invited to board meetings, but design was not, and there was no product. So right away you have a power imbalance. The the cards are stacked against you. Well, then, and so, but that's a pretty normal profile for the equity play that is a startup, where what they're trying to do is say to the market that this that there is unbridled economic opportunity in this technology and it can actually be detrimental to their market valuation to have product deliverable solutions that can be measured. And and it's been interesting, people who were a little bit further along, uh, along the roadmap of product got lower valuations than people who just had an algorithm but nothing that anybody would want to buy it's or consume. exciting. Yeah. The exciting possibility it's 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 like dating. You meet someone new and you're like, oh my God, this could be amazing. It's much easier than, oh, we've been dating for a bit and like so, he, he burps a lot. Okay, I so, I, so I'm so happy that you've <laughs> headed into the dating territory because I think all business is like teenage dating. Yeah. So let's say we've hit the liminance moment. We've, <clears throat> we've got a period of time where everything seems right on, on the brief. Out of those organisations that you've worked with, and particularly I'm interested in Planned Parenting because they've got this really high sense of purpose and mission, so it would have been very clear what they needed you to go do. The startup was probably less clear. Some of the big corporates that you've worked with would be somewhere in the middle. Yes. Um, there's there's a lot of confusion for, among the big corporates. Um I've worked in design and research roles. I've worked in educational roles and training, um, all because it's a question of where the locus of power and decision-making is coming from. Um, You know, when I was at a particular news organization, all of the strategic decisions were made in the boardroom elsewhere, in the building, in the organization. We'd hear, oh, so-and-so wants this redesigned personally. And it's sort of a... It's an odd flex. I mean, I can respect that, but does it necessarily drive the business or improve the perception of the business or customer acquisition? Not necessarily. Um, it's just a, a manifestation of ego, and that's fine. If, if you can get that power, more, cool, okay. But I'm interested in doing things that work for business and people. I'm always interested when the term ego is brought up because... Ego, there's actually it's a there's a scale on it. And there's a there's a toxic ego, and then there's also an impotent ego that's in there. And there's this beautiful scale that goes between the two of them. You know, we we wouldn't have had um, Nelson Mandela without ego. We wouldn't have had Muhammad Ali without ego. We wouldn't have had. 
Donald Trump with that ego. And I think the thing that differentiates them is self-awareness. A- ability to turn on a dime if you get different information. I worked with a, a, a COO of one of the, the, the big insurance companies and we had done a bunch of research for them and I was presenting our findings. And, you know, when you're dealing with the sea level, sometimes they get distracted, they play on their phones, they're not fully attentive. This guy was focused and taking notes and asking questions because he realized I was sharing with him something his team was too afraid or not fully aware of telling him. It, it was like a giant systems transformation program they were spending tens of millions of dollars on. We were brought in for a hot minute, did some research and realized, wow, you're a, you're, you've not invested in your systems for something like 47 years and you've created a, 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 a company culture in which your employees are super anxious. I have people telling me, I'm worried I'm, I'm going to be perceived as the weak link. If I move this forward without making sure everything is actually perfect in, in terms of like the insurance guidelines and all the, the standard operating procedures, I'll get my hand slapped. Serious, serious anxiety behaviors were manifesting and they had no idea that it was coloring their culture so much. And that manifests financially too because when people are that anxious, they go slower even than they need to. And that costs the company too. So it's just you pay now or you pay later. And we're seeing that right across the whole financial sector. We know listeners who have listened to multiple podcasts will have heard me talking about the the financial donut. So the financial donut is that in the core is the board and the C-suite who who want things to be fantastic. And then on the outer rim, you've got this crusty bit who also want the world to be fantastic. And in the middle is this doughy middle management that actually doesn't want to change and doesn't want anything to happen that, that might change their status quo. It's not just limited to, to fintech, but because they've been trying to go through rapid transformation because they understand the friction or the cost of service business or the overhead, whichever one you want to go call it, that they've been able to put a dimension over their middle management inertia, which is inertia in, invested in status now, but their desire is to get to the performance of status next. <laughs> And the vision's there about status next, but they can't work out how to bring those people along the journey. And so I think what you've described there was exactly the same as what we've seen with most financial services institutions, which is that they're caught in status quo. And I think as designers, our role is to actually work out how to bring the future faster, It's which therefore it's got to be status next. And the challenge is, what do you leave behind? And for those people, because leaving behind sounds like it may have been that they were going to be left behind. You have to bring them along with you. That was the way. Or there's another technique that's used, which is used very, very successfully in the tech sector, which is outplacement. So there's outplacement, which is actually turning around and putting people on a rubbish dump. And there's outplacement, which is actually giving people their next career opportunity and career leverage. And the, what's interesting in the tech sector is that they worked out that they needed the people to be alumni because the next patent that they come up with, the company wants to get leverage of their insight, but it doesn't fit their current strategy. So it was actually thinking of them as a future asset, as ally alumni, rather than thinking them as a cost on a balance sheet or a headcount. 
and you know some of the clients i've worked with they don't look at people in 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 terms of oh my goodness i need to lay off all these people they're thinking how do i how do i keep these people's industry knowledge because our industry is so niche and complex but use them in a different way so sometimes it's a question of shining a light on areas that they hadn't even realized existed sometimes it's actually we recommend that you retrain these employees to to build relationships and you know you can automate this other stuff over here that's fine that's that's a huge trend in the industry as well but you your your people that have that knowledge you can move them elsewhere in the business and have them provide a different kind of value and there's a great project that I know of for the immigration department in Australia. And uh, you're saying, really, a government department that's got a great story? Yep. So they had an opportunity to go and uh, bring in some human-centered design, rapidly improve customer service levels by doing the transformation, and then they would have freed up a huge number of resources. And they were redeployed internally for the next area that wasn't actually being serviced well. So that... And it was, it was done so gracefully that they said, well, actually, in this case, the human in the middle is actually now friction and delay, lowering customer service and satisfaction. Let's get, let's get the human out of the way there and let's go put those you know, highly subject matter expert um, service staff, the management staff, let's move them into other areas where the human in the middle is actually adding value and let's go and actually take up our service levels. And and uh, what I saw was that they went and they, and this happened to be a fee-for-service part of the government, they doubled their revenue, they halved their cost per transaction, they improved their response time by 4,000 times from 28 days down to 10 minutes, and now it's gone to five minutes response out of this system. And you go, That's incredible. Who would have thought the government that used to take a month could now take five minutes? And so it's win, 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 win. But it was all because there was a sponsor who worked out that there was an opportunity to actually just work around all of the normal systems and redeploy his team, redeploy technology and actually get a win for the humans that were involved, both the humans inside the organisation and the humans who were trying to go get services from government. People are adaptable and I think delight, I, I, I hate that word, I have to tell you, I really hate it. It's not that it's not a valuable thing to strive for, it's just that you have to define what delight is up front. Isn't delight when you go to a cupcake shop and then you have a smile on your face? That's and that's part. Of it. So it's a little bit like design right. used to mean style. Right. Delight means cupcakes to me. So yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I mean, it, with a lot of my clients, we actually have to have explicit conversations up front about what delight is, because you know, okay, if I get to the hotel and they give me a fresh baked cookie, that's cool, fine. I'm not really supposed to eat cookies. Like I'm, I'm trying, trying to do the low carb thing, but still, like that's a nice you're, effort. You so you're a little bit like me. I've got a really efficient metabolism, <laughs> and if it sees a carb, it says I will need this in the future when there isn't food available, and it yes, stores it. Absolutely, my and camels. So my my efficient metabolism <laughs> actually totally. it, it, it has mm -hmm. a warehousing problem. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But with with delight, with a lot of my enterprise clients. I kind of have to remind them, you know, delight for your customers is probably just paying their bill and moving on and not thinking about you. Well, actually, that's that thing about why do we want to be significant in these people's lives? And I was I was fortunate that I worked in ballet 
at, at a very young age. And what I saw was that ballet was about grace and presence on stage and side stage. There were these hopping, puffing ballerinas. The moment they got on stage, it was just grace and elegance. And the reality was that nobody wanted to see how much effort goes into a ballet performance because the delight is actually that it's effortless. And I suppose if we can work out how to get out from even appearing that we're there, you're probably providing the best service. It's when it's when the marketing type comes in and says, but nobody recognises how good we are, so let's put a friction point in here that reminds them how good we are. Or, or let's talk about how great we are, even though it's a service that people are terrified to use. Like I worked with a malpractice insurer, medical malpractice. People will sue their doctors. Happy here. days. It, it, I think it's a very American thing and it, and growing. But realistically, every doctor needs malpractice insurance. Mm -hmm. Every doctor is also terrified to think about needing it one day. So they might need it, but they might not want to think about it. So you build a relationship and you stay in the background. And, and knowing when, when to shine and when not to shine is, is really important in an experience over time. And... It's hard when you're dealing with clients that, that they live and breathe the company. The executives are supposed to re represent their brand. And it's it's an interesting shift of mindset to get them to the point where they realize you don't always have to be the center of the universe. So let's drill in a little bit, if we can, on the malpractice insurance client because that's such an interesting brief. So I'd imagine the board for the malpractice insurer knew that when – the doctor had been um, ignorant of the situation that was unfolding and delayed it, that then the claim and the compensation would have gone up exponentially because in a lot of malpractice, it's actually that you just want to be heard and be seen and acknowledged. It isn't about the claim. It's actually about somebody saying, you've, you've made an error you've affected me in my life, maybe we need to talk about some compensation because there may be ongoing costs. But if if the doctor ignores it, if their behaviour is to deny it, if the is to invalidate the person who's there, the cost of claim goes up dramatically for the insurance. That's when people get pissed off and are more persistent. You use such an elegant term there, pissed off. Okay, I didn't know if I was allowed to go there. Oh, please. Uh, I'm, I'm a New Yorker. We, we do pissed off very well. <laughs> okay. Uh, but realistically, that's when you have a situation where things get more heated. But hopefully it never gets to that point. So then if I was on the board of this organisation, I'd be turning around saying our objective is to make sure that we've provided a risk product for the unfortunate circumstance that one of the customers of our customer has a warranty claim. And we want that to be done as fast and as soon as possible. And could you, designer, come in and help them to understand the risk has already been covered. We want to make the claim process as efficient as possible and the compensation as small as possible. And then everybody wins. Sometimes. The funny thing is what we usually get asked to do is not touch the claims process at all because they want it to be very human to human and reassuring and like fluffy wrap you in cotton wool it's going to be okay and the rest of the process they want to be super efficient 
that said, there's also some sorting that goes that factors in uh, while you're requesting the insurance on the on the practitioner side. So there's different types of insurances, insurance products. Some are more structured, some are more unstructured, depending on how risky you seemed. So I was really struggling with these clients in the beginning to to get through to them, and then I realized, you know, why are these people being so critical, picky, difficult? Like, can we have an actual conversation about? you know, the, the value being exchanged between the company and its customers. And I realized all of these people were either actuaries or underwriters, people that had trained to assess risk throughout their careers. And the way that you rise in this industry, in that business, is to be pickier and pickier and pickier. So the people that get to the top are obviously the pickiest. And they think very highly of their judgment. So you get that sort of like, confirmation bias sometimes of of my opinion is absolutely correct that my perception of the world is 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 real but realistically there's some there's some middle ground between you know different perceptions of the world there's some actual truth that is not entirely one or the other i was privileged uh, back in the about 2002 i had a insurance actuary client who also had empathy Oh wow! He he was the most dynamic, you know, risk assessor that I knew because he he understood that there was this very um, analytical aspect to the risk, but there was also opportunities to offset claim dimensions by having the human moment take place. Mm-hmm. Is the practitioner calm under pressure? Do they freak out? Have they had issues with that in the past? Are there things going on in their personal life that we need to know about too? Have they had, you know, tickets or or DUIs or something like that? All of those things factor in because it's about reputation too. So then you've got the board who have said we know that there's – we've got higher – compensation that's been requested than could be so there's efficiency there we know that there's actually there's probably the cost of the process is higher than it could be and we want to get some efficiencies there but fundamentally we want to make sure that the warranty claims for this professional service have been dealt with because we've factored in that a certain percentage of uh, of the transactions that take place will have a warranty on uh, call on them so that they know that they're in the business of paying out yes. it is as the, little as possible but yes well as little as possible could be either done in a negative way or it could be by setting the expectations of people who are in the claim channel mm-hmm. to have have them reduced so that you've actually worked on reducing the amount that they're asking for by listening to them as humans. There's a, so there's a great design opportunity there. No doubt you would have had some people downstream who understood that, but you would have had that little donut thing in the middle, the, the middle management that were hard to go get through and work through that gauntlet, which which often we don't speak about that it's actually that middle tier that is whether it's going to be a successfully implemented initiative or struggle. They have to believe that it's going to be successful or they won't try there's so much anxiety that comes up during one of these initiatives. I mean, there's a reason most transformations fail. I've, I've seen thousands of articles and quotes about it, uh, but I can't remember one off the top of my head. But transformations fail because they're scary and people lose faith. So what I'm interested here is we've got 
we, we've got a scenario that we're talking about where there's actually really good dialogue and um, objective understanding and reporting back to the board. That, that, that's the easy part. Mm -hmm. But it's actually the managing down, isn't it? It's actually managing that transformation that's been envisaged because you've leapfrogged over the middle management, you've gone down to the coal face, you've worked out the, uh, the scenarios, the situations, and now it's working out, well, how do we get people to play this different song, which is they're now playing jazz rather than classic, uh, and because that's what's going to be needed. That behavioural organisational change part is often the most difficult, isn't it's it? It's managing down, but it's also managing across. I usually call it across because most of the companies that I'm dealing with are huge and siloed. And they think every silo is unique. Every silo is different. They have their own challenges. Turns out when you dig a little deeper and you compare really methodically, they might not be that different after all. Well, but they still have to talk to each other. So I want to go then into sporting codes because sporting codes give us that same siloed indication that if you're a supporter of one particular team, you think that there's unique and different culture than the other. And there is. Well, you're also incentivized to do that because then your day-to-day -day doesn't have to change too much. So there is this bias because people don't want to have to change more than necessary. I had people with this project telling me, oh, I'm going to retire when this whole thing come, comes to fruition, when this transformation is com technically complete because they don't want to learn new systems because they think it's going to be the same Such sort of lift. Comment, isn't it? Yeah. And it's mind-blowing. I mean, you have to get people really relaxed to talk to you that honestly and you have to promise, you know, we had to do a sneaky thing where I told them up front, I'm not going to tell you who talks to me. I'm not going to tell you who we talk to. I will give you these criteria only, but we need absolute privacy. Otherwise, we're not going to get actual honesty and we may as well just not bother. Um, the interesting thing about this is sometimes clients come to me and they don't even want to look at the internal layer, the, the, the feels behind the initiative. We actually had a lot more luck um, in this project working with the employees. So there was a change management team. There was an operations team. We made friends with them. I worked, I worked hard when employees, internal employees will gossip with you about what's going on to, to, so I can help them get things done. You know, you're making progress. And, you know, part of this was, you know, we did a couple of lunch and learns. We sat around and made ourselves available for people to come talk to us. And they shared things that we didn't know existed that leadership didn't know existed. Is that fascinating when you go find out that you somebody's uh, told you how the machine works and then when you uh, take the cover off, you find out there's a different gearbox in the machine than everyone thought there was? Yes, absolutely. I, I think it's also shocking when you bubble that back up to leadership and then go, we had no idea this was happening. We had no idea there was such an impact. Um, some Some employee at this company told me, because all their systems were manual, there was no form checking, no no checking at all. Someone had entered a debit as a credit worth $20,000. And these are huge policies, but that's a massive amount of money to lose because of a typo. Leadership had no idea. I mean, that's easily quantifiable. Quantifying the speed of decreasing speed of overly anxious employees in a, a, a fraught system is harder, but it's also possible. Um, then you have to track time and quantify that. But realistically, they thought, oh, the systems are more expensive than, than anything and our people will handle it just fine. But realistically, there is 
a huge human component and it, 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 does, it can cost money and they don't always realize that or they don't realize, you know, by violating these sort of norms of, of procedure, communication, you're actually creating other problems. I worked with another client where, you know, their internal systems and communications were so poor. They had a terrible intranet that was horrible and impossible to use. Nobody used it, basically. Um, all of their systems were so difficult to self-serve. They had still uh, an executive assistant layer of people set up to help. Each executive had their own, and then different groups had also access to them. And these executive assistants were trading. They were literally bartering information for favors. Not anything untoward, but just, I need this equipment moved from this worksite to another worksite, and I'll tell you about the new printer policy so you can get your form forms printed. Information was so hard to find that they had a, a human network, and each executive assistant was a node. But that's not something that leadership really wants to hear, that there's a cost to not thinking about the human element of an experience. It's, it's an interesting thing to have to kind of surface. You have to be willing to speak truth to power. And the way I always approach it is with some humor, honestly, because it makes it easier to take your medicine, especially sometimes coming from a woman, honestly. It's much easier if I make it sound a little bit funny. And I mean, it's terrible also. But realistically, I, I want you to, to take in the information. So however I have to frame it, I'll do it. Realistically, though, what I want them to understand is this is happening. You can do whatever you want with the information, but this is the situation. And it's validated and verified. And we've had checks and balances. We've, we've figured this out through multiple sources. So this is not just a guess. You can choose not to act on it, but you might endanger your future business goals. One of the things that I like about the stories that you've just told there in those examples is that it's the T-shaped management. You've got to go across the organization, across uh, every faculty in it, but then you've also got to go deep into it. And if you can't work out how to get deep into all of the nooks and crannies, going to miss things which are going to make a transformation successful and this is you know some people think we're an agency we we have done some agency stuff but i treat this more as consulting because we need to have a certain level of radical honesty between us like i'm leading the project or or running the relationship and they're responsible on, on their side for the success of the project so they need to trust that i'll tell them like if you don't need something i'll tell you I'm not here to, to hustle you, to, to extract more of your dollars. I'm trying to drive results. And without that sort of level of trust, it's really, really hard to make any progress. Jessica, I'm absolutely blown away by just the frankness of, you know, what you've been able to go share with us in, in the last half hour. But also for the listeners that are, are listening, that there's actionable information there. They can actually look at the stories that you've, you've just told us and be able to go and understand how they could apply that in their world because you're masterful in the work that you're doing. Thank you. I'm so humbled that you shared, shared it with us. So um, no doubt this is the first of many conversations that we'll have about how do you do the manage up, manage across and also manage down to make sure that design is being able to be implemented in organisations. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for your time.